the Office of Personnel Management is offering some extra help to federal unions that are looking to add more eligible employees to their membership rosters. OPM says its online employee database, FedScope, can actually drill down to find out where some unrepresented employees work. Here with more of what that means, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And Drew, let's start with that data that's available in FedScope. What is it and why would OPM give it out to the unions? So, Tom, basically in FedScope, you can drill down and find out which agencies have these unrepresented workers who are eligible for a union but currently not part of one. This is something OPM is reminding federal unions of. They sent an email to federal unions saying that basically they can narrow down and find which agencies basically have the highest portions of unrepresented federal employees. The message was really to highlight where the information was available. Unions can go in and pull this raw data on where those agencies with more or fewer unrepresented workers are eligible. This is something that was already publicly available, but something that OPM is trying to remind unions of that they can use to look for those workers. Interesting. So OPM is just reminding them that it's there. They can avail themselves of it. Any limitations there? Right. So there is some limitation on basically the particular or personal information for these workers. So it doesn't give you the names or email addresses of employees, and it doesn't say whether or not there is actually an existing collective bargaining unit at a given office or a given agency. Basically, you can see the numbers, but you can't see the contact information to actually reach these employees at the end of it all. The data also provided on the website isn't in real time, so it's not necessarily 100% accurate. The most recent FedScope data we have is from March 2022, so agencies might have more up-to-date information on how many employees they actually have who aren't union represented. OPM did say, though, in this message to federal unions that they can connect a union to any particular agency if they're looking for more specific information about unrepresented workers at a given office. And why is this coming up now at this point in history, ahead of the midterms, or what is prompting OPM, the administration, really, to want to try to double down on federal employee union membership? So this is something that kind of started earlier this year. Back in February, the White House Task Force on Worker Organizing and Empowerment, they released nearly 70 recommendations about how to help employees access their union rights. So this reminder from OPM addresses one of those recommendations. In general, they focus on essentially removing barriers or obstacles that could prevent federal employees and their ability to organize or join a union. One of those recommendations, which is now what they're really focused on in this specific instance, is to make it easier for unions to reach unrepresented workers. Currently, there are 300,000 federal employees who are eligible to join union, but not currently represented. Basically, this is helping unions, just a reminder to connect and better access employees and improve data transparency. So that's really OPM's goal with this reminder message that they have sent out. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, and you have looked at some of the FedScope data yourself that you withdrew, and what did you find? We put together a compilation of this data, taking the raw data from FedScope and breaking it down percentage-wise so you can see how agencies are differently impacted by this. So, for example, if you look at the total number of employees which is available on FedScope versus how many unrepresented workers are there. The numbers can get a little bit more complex. As an example, the Veterans Health Administration at the Department of Veterans Affairs, they have one of the highest numbers of unrepresented employees at an agency subcomponent. They have 
nearly 18,000 workers who are eligible to join your union, but not currently part of that bargaining unit. But that subcomponent overall has hundreds of thousands of employees at VHA. So when you look at that 18,000 number, it's actually just 4.7% of the total union eligible workforce. In a different example, the Naval Information Warfare Systems Command, they have about half that number at VHA that's eligible to join a union at 9,800 who are unrepresented. Even though that number is smaller, that represents about 90% of that office that is unrepresented. What about the unions? They must be thrilled by all of this. Right. So we did see from the National Federation of Federal Employees, they were one of the unions who publicly voiced their support for this FedScope search function. Again, it's a reminder, so it's it's not something that was necessarily new, but it is, as this union said, very, very helpful to them to try to access these workers. Again, there are 300,000 unrepresented federal employees. The National Federation of Federal Employees Union, they specifically requested that type of assistance. So they said that they really value the tool and they're planning to use it to just target certain offices. It's it's, they said it's helpful to basically maybe move resources to some areas or some agencies more so than others to try to recruit more union members. Any other types of data that the unions would like to get or they're asking OPM or the agencies for? Right. So as I said, there are almost 70 recommendations from this working group, and this update addresses just one out of many other recommendations. So there could be a lot of other stuff coming up that we might hear from OPM on this. In one instance, we had the uh, National Treasury Employees Union. They're calling for other ways to be able to better access federal employees who are currently unrepresented but eligible to join a union. So the FedScope data takes them a little bit further. But again, there's no specific contact information. So it's a limited data set. It's also not up to date. So NTEU National President Tony Reardon He did share a little bit more with us about what NTEU is really pushing for. Labor unions in the federal sector are required to represent all bargaining unit employees. But do you know that historically we have not been provided access to email for the employees that we are by law required to represent? If we are provided access to email addresses, then we can do a lot of communicating with those folks about the fact that they can belong to a union and what belonging to the union does for them. And then they can make whatever choice that they make, right, whether they're going to belong to the union or not. Anything else we need to know here, Drew? It sounds like federal managers facing unions in the future could be facing unions with maybe just a little bit more heft than they have now. Yeah, so we'll just have to kind of see what the unions are going to be able to do with this information and whether they're going to kind of change the way that they're targeting workers and also what else is coming up from OPM on just responding to a lot of these recommendations, looking to take down some of the barriers to employees trying to join unions. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. Check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement, And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with an, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style 
developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. 
Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.